You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are very fortunate to have a real-life microbiologist talk to us about the microbiome, because boy, is there a lot of misinformation and a lot of things misunderstood about the microbiome. So Andrea is going to set us straight. But before we do, let's briefly chat about last week's episode. If you have not already checked that out, you really do want to go back and listen to it. I was really proud of that episode, Andrea. We talked about alternative therapies versus conventional medicine. And I think, you know, we we tried to explain our stance on alternative therapies and how we're open to it if there's evidence and data to support their use. Um, but anyway, you, you don't want to miss it. Go back and check that out. And since that episode aired, um, unfortunately, Tina Turner passed away. And just today, Andrea, you sent me an interesting article about how she basically in the last couple of months of her life, she expressed some regret. And do you want to talk about it? Yeah. So, so ultimately, you know, she died of, you know, a variety of medical issues, but stemming from things related to kidney failure and so on. And she had actually confessed that when, um, you know, she was living in Paris or, or in France, um, not in Paris, um, can't remember the town, but she stopped taking her actual prescribed medication and she started going to a homeopathic clinician or a homeopathic practitioner and started using homeopathy. And, you know, if you recall from our posts and our podcast episode on homeopathy, these are just glorified sugar pills, right? They don't have any active, you don't have any therapeutic ingredients, none are FDA approved. There's no evidence to support their use. And, And that really goes to the underlying issue we have with these alternative. It's not some of them, yes, can be harmful, but it's the fact that many people are replacing actual medical interventions with these things that have no evidence to support their use. And she even acknowledged that this likely exacerbated and accelerated her illness and potentially her death. And honestly, you know, I think last week we did, we we tried to explain that You know, we understand why some people gravitate to these alternative therapies for a variety. There are a variety of reasons, but they're not a replacement for conventional medicine. If you want to to try some, if you know, with clearance from your physician, because we know that some of these things can actually be harmful, it might be okay to do in conjunction with actual, you know, evidence-based medical treatments, conventional medicine. But this is you know, unfortunately, it's a terrible example of what can happen. Right. It's a it's a really tragic example with someone who's very high profile, you know, obviously very affluent. You know, these types of wellness trends that don't have evidence often are um, more popular among people that have financial means because, again, they're not covered by insurance because there's no evidence to support their use. Um, but ultimately, you know, the fact that they're so pervasive in pop culture um, is also a reason why, you know, other people 
often fall prey to them. So Andrea, I want to get into the microbiome because this is such a buzzword. Everything is is about the microbiome. People are trying to sell us things, supplements, probiotics, tinctures to get the optimal microbiome. So I think we need to hear from you, you know, first of all, what's real, what's not, what is the microbiome? I feel like we really, this is just such a massive topic and, and we don't know what we don't. No. So people who make claims, these definitive claims about, oh, this is how you get a healthy, normal microbiome, like that doesn't really mean anything, <laughs> you know? So so can you kick things off for us? What is the microbiome? Let's set the stage here. So the microbiome, and it's funny because I remember, you know, reading studies about the microbiome in graduate school, you know, decades ago when it was getting to be the hot topic, but, and obviously attention has grown. We're starting to understand a lot more things. But as you said, Jess, you know, there's there's a ton that we don't understand still. So the microbiome, like the term itself, it literally refers to the population of microorganisms, that's the micro part, that live or exist in a certain environment. That's the biome part, right? Life micro. So this could relate to the microbiome of an ecological environment, uh, of a different organism, of plant-based habitat, but it also can refer to specific organ systems within an organism or the whole organism itself. So For our purposes, we'll talk about the human microbiome, and the human microbiome refers to the entire collection of microorganisms that live in and on our body, various cavities on our skin, and within the human microbiome, there are different microbiomes, right? We talk about the oral microbiome, so those are the microorganisms that live in our mouth. We have the vaginal microbiome, which we talked about in our podcast episodes on vaginal health and menstrual myths, but often the attention is focused on the gut microbiome, so these are the microorganisms that live in the GI tract. So everything essentially from the stomach down um, through the small intestine, large intestine, colon, and rectum. So the microbiome includes all microorganisms. So these are bacteria, these are viruses, these are fungi that live in the digestive tract when we talk about the gut microbiome. And this includes probably about 100 trillion different bacteria with hundreds of different species. Up to 500 species have currently been identified, and there's probably more in that mix that we haven't yet identified, and we'll talk a little bit about why that is. But ultimately, that's what it is. It's the collection of microorganisms that live in and on our body. Um, Typically, they offer some sort of benefit, or they live in harmony, which we call them commensals. Occasionally, you know, this can be pathogenic microorganisms, which can lead to illness. But the vast majority of all microorganisms, whether we're talking about out in the environment or or in our body, are benign. They're harmless to humans. So, I mean, based on on how you're describing the microbiome, it seems complex to say the least. So would you say it's too simplistic to say, you know, or to, to characterize something as a healthy microbiome or a normal microbiome? Is there, seems like there's a lot of variation. Yeah. So, so it's great. I mean, we know kind of different phyla of, of bacteria that normally we expect to find in the gut microbiome, but yeah, the populations, the proportions, the individual species, the genus, these are all going to vary person to person. There are going to be some shared commonalities, but the 
the populations of bacteria that live in our gut is dependent on so many different things. And they're very important. We do know that they're important. We do have some understanding on some of the roles that they play. You know, they, if you listen to our fiber episode, they participate in digestion and extraction of nutrients. They help us synthesize certain vitamins and minerals that humans can't synthesize, like vitamin K is a great example. The bacteria that live in our gut also help educate and prime our immune system. So they're kind kind of sampling, you know, molecules that end up in our digestive tract and they're, you know, making sure that they don't react inappropriately to them, which um, can lead to, you know, gastrointestinal things like food intolerances or possible food allergies. So, you know, it's very important. The healthy, you know, the non-pathogenic bacteria that live in our gut also help ward off pathogenic bacteria. So there's a phenomenon called microbial antagonism, which basically means these healthy or these non-pathogenic microorganisms are basically taking up the real estate there. There's only a finite amount of surface area that other pathogenic organisms can come in and colonize. So if there are good bacteria or non-pathogenic bacteria already living there, they're going to take up the space and they're going to prevent colonization from things that may cause illness to humans. So, you know, lots of different roles that they play. But yes, there's an incredible amount of diversity. The two biggest phyla of gut bacteria are the firmicutes and the bacteroides. And even within those, there are hundreds and hundreds of different species. And again, all different proportions, and that's going to be incredibly variable from person to person. But we know that, you know, there's a lot of roles that they play. They participate in nutrient metabolism. They also help um, metabolize drugs or biologics that we might be consuming. They also, again, as I mentioned, participate in immune defenses. So they also help maintain the integrity of the mucosa in the gut. Um, so we don't have, you know, breaks or, or um, breaches that things can get into other sites in our body. And the diversity, the number of species and the proportions of these species are going to be very dynamic. Now, we know broadly certain populations are going to be stable. And if those do change, that can indicate a potential health issue. But these populations are responding to all sorts of things. They are shaped by how you were born, whether you were born by vaginal birth or cesarean birth. They're shaped by your diet, both in childhood and as you age. They're shaped by your environment. So your home, your outdoor environment, who you live with, who you interact with, if you have pets, what type of pets. So we know that the microbiome participates in a lot of different processes in our body. We know that it's, um, you know, changes in the microbiome profile can possibly contribute to the development of certain disorders, but we know more broadly that the microbiome participates in things like nutrient metabolism, drug metabolism. Um, it also ensures that we maintain the, the physical barriers of the immune system, so the gut mucosal lining. Um, and of course, as I mentioned, it helps us protect against pathogens. So, you know, there are over 500 different species that have already been identified. We know that there are certain classes or phyla of these bacteria that we would expect expect to see in relatively high numbers. So if you saw a drop off in those, that might be a cause for concern. But the microbiome is going to be incredibly diverse from person to person. And even within a person, it's always going to be changing because these are living organisms that are responding to changes in their environment. But things that are going to broadly shape the microbiome would be things like how you were born, whether you were born by vaginal birth or cesarean birth, because um, we know that 
the vaginal microbiome has things that will colonize uh, an infant during childbirth. Your diet, both as an infant, but also throughout your life, your environment, that includes your home environment, but also the outdoors, the geography you live in, the country you live in, whether you have pets at home, what type of pets, because they all have their own microbiome too, you're going to interact with them, your inherent immune system, which also can be shaped by your genetics. Um, and there's a lot of other factors as well. So, you know, even within a single person, your microbiome is never going to be the same from day to day. There's going to be changes because, again, from our fiber episode, these bacteria are also using the foods you eat as food sources for themselves. And so certain bacteria are going to like to feed on certain things more than other species of bacteria. And so you're going to see fluctuations in those populations just due to normal processes. So this is super, super interesting stuff. Um, and from what I'm gathering based on what you're saying, it sounds like there are some things that in the short term can impact our, our microbiome and then also long term, things like genetic factors and the Way we were born and you know things like that so that, that that's really interesting okay so i have a couple of questions if i could pick your brain that i would imagine some of our listeners have so first of all obviously so many supplements and products are being marketed to us to improve or optimize our microbiome um and in the you know, obviously, I, I said this before we hit record. I said, I have nothing to contribute to this episode um, except to prompt you with questions. You know, I, this is just not my area of expertise. But based on what I was reading, it seems like you know, taking a probiotic, for example, and we've done so we've done pod episodes, we've done posts, we've done so much on it. And, and actually we did a recent post. I'm sorry, I'm going off on a tangent about new data that showed that probiotics may actually be harmful in terms of the, the, I think, was it the diversity of our microbiome or what's yeah. in our microbiome? So I just, I guess I would love to understand more like are these things ever necessary? How do we know that there is a problem with our microbiome that warrants fixing? You know, is that ever the case? Like, can we talk more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, the the high-level answer is there's nothing that we can do right now to determine whether or not there's problem with our microbiome that needs intervention. So, you know, again, there is so much that we don't still understand. A lot of the ways that we sample for microbiome composition have limitations as well. Um, and, and, and ultimately, again, these populations are dynamic and diverse and they're changing even within a single organism. You know, we often hear you, you need probiotics to add more bacteria to your gut. And when you look at, you know, what's in a probiotic supplement, you're usually talking about the hundreds of millions to billions number of bacteria. And while that sounds like a lot, remember, we have 100 trillion bacteria already in our gut. So it's really a drop in the bucket as far as like the numbers. But the bigger problem there is that these probiotic supplements, if they do survive the, the acidity of the stomach um, and make it to your upper or lower GI tract, they're typically only one species. And because you're now replenishing a population with a singular species, you may reduce the diversity of the microbiome in your gut that's already there. And while we don't know what every species is doing, we know broadly that diversity is very important. And so if things are happening that are reducing that diversity, that could potentially negatively impact how your microbiome functions. You know, I think it's really important, and, and this is true for all these supplements or all these things that people are trying to do to hack your health, like your body, including your human cells and also your microorganism cells, 
it's pretty smart at what it does. Like, that's not to say that there aren't health issues that crop up, but it's pretty well regulated. It's really good at sensing perturbations and activating the appropriate responses in order to address those perturbations. So, you know, this this notion that like, our bodies aren't doing the job they should be doing and we need to like eat a lot of these supplements, which again, have no evidence to support them to begin with. It's just a weird disconnect. Well, and Andrea, it's so funny. People, of course, always accuse us of being shills, but in reality, we tell people, save your money. Don't buy these products. There's really no evidence to support them. Instead, eat a balanced diet. You know, get get all this stuff from food sources. You don't need these supplements, which, by the way, are not regulated. Um, and I just wanted to recap a little bit about the content. We put out so much content on probiotics, but again, the overwhelming majority of commercial available probiotic supplements have not been investigated for effectiveness. The types and quantities of bacteria present in probiotic supplements do not represent the native human gut microbiota. And, you know, Andrea, you talk so much about the diversity of the human gut microflora and how there are thousands of different species. And then, you know, while that's what's present in our gut, commercial probiotics usually contain fewer than 10 species. And then let's see what else. The bacteria found in probiotics are generally not native to the human gut and they fail to colonize as a result. Most are derived from dairy, but the human gut is not a natural environment for these organisms. And I don't know, all, all kinds of products. And actually when there was this article in the New York Times and they did a survey of people like you, you know, microbiome research experts and asked, do you use probiotics? The large majority said no. Instead, we focus on, you know, getting getting good stuff from from our diet. Right, exactly. And, and you know, I think as we we discussed um, in quite a lot of detail on the probiotic episode, you know, the probiotic supplements are going to be things that are relatively easy to grow in large quantities in the lab. And those are going to be things like these dairy-related lactobacillus um, type bacteria or bifidobacterium, which you will find in, in active cultures like yogurts and, and kefir. But again, when you eat something, it has to make its way through the very acidic stomach first. And a lot of those are not uh, going to survive. And even if they get to the intestine, um, the the physiology of a human intestine is going to be very different than the physiology of other animals or other organisms' environments. And there's a lot of factors that bacteria need, um, different genes they have to turn on, different proteins they have to produce in order to attach and survive, uh, in order to survive these different environments. Okay. So we've sort of debunked, I don't know if this is not debunked, but we've minimized the importance and necessity of probiotics. So what else should we talk about? I mean, I know that there's a lot of focus on prebiotics, which are different than probiotics and fiber. And, you know, that is a way to improve our gut microbiota, but that we're not just talking about fiber. And as you were alluding to, there are lots of things that could impact our microbiome and, and all that good stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned, you know, these these organisms, they're living organisms that live in the gut. These are that's their environment and as such they need food sources to survive. So when you're eating something, it's not just energy for yourself, which ultimately is extracted in the it's it's processed and extracted in the form of ATP for your cells, but a lot of these metabolic products that um, you know, are generated as a result of your your digestion serves as food for the bacteria that live 
in your gut as well. So, you know, we talk a lot about fiber and, and how those different, um, compounds, things like pectins and so on, and, and are serve as food sources for these bacteria, but everything you eat is a food source for the bacteria. And so there are going to be certain species in certain phyla that, preferentially digest or or survive on certain types of fats or lipids, some that prefer certain types of amino acids, which are byproducts of proteins, certain types of carbohydrates, which are going to be byproducts from your starches and your sugars. And so as your dietary profile changes, even on a day-to-day basis, the bacteria that are also feeding on those byproducts are going to change in response. And so certain species that uh, do a better job of extracting energy from fats may increase if you have a fatty meal or or so on and so forth. And so, you know, these populations are constantly changing, but all of the things that enter your body ultimately right. are going to also change the bacteria, which are part of your body. You know, that's so interesting. It has me thinking, and I know we plan to tackle this in an entirely separate um, pod episode, but the implications of different types of diets, like, you know, animal rich diets and then plant-based diets. And I'm, you know, those different things that we're consuming, as you said, every single thing we put in our mouth, even from the time we wake up, the coffee we drink, the creamer we put in our coffee. I mean, all of these things are impacting our microbiota. So Andrea, I know you reviewed and Please stop me if I'm going out of order here. I know there's so much we want to tackle, but that just thinking about my morning coffee, putting sugar, putting artificial sweeteners, things like that can also have different impacts on on our microbiome. Do you want to talk about some of the research you've read? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is an important point because, of course, a lot of the focus, you know, we're trying to understand all of the different things that the microbiome plays a role in. And we know that it plays a role in helping to educate and prime the immune system. We know that it helps play a role in normal gut function and digestion. And of course, a lot of research now is looking at what's changing the microbiome. And so there's been obviously a very heavy focus on artificial sweeteners. They've been vilified by a variety of people, even though sugar is also vilified. But but ultimately, artificial sweeteners are non-nutritive sweeteners. And we did a podcast episode on that topic too. Um, But basically what that means is that For humans, when you consume them, they taste sweet, but our body is not able to extract calories from them. So non-nutritive means that it doesn't contribute to your caloric intake. However, that doesn't mean that the bacteria are not metabolizing it. It simply means that when you're looking at your caloric consumption for the day, if you eat one of these non-nutritive sweeteners, it does not provide your body with energy, your cells. So there are different types. There are synthetic ones, things like sucralose and saccharin. There are also um, an aspartame. There are also natural ones like stevia or monk fruit. And ultimately, these are used as a substitute for nutritive sweeteners like sucrose, which is table sugar, or other types of sweeteners like maple syrup and honey and agave, which have different components, different proportions of simple sugars like fructose and glucose. So ultimately, nutritive sweeteners are stereotypical carbohydrate molecules. Non-nutritive sweeteners are carbohydrates, but they're not metabolized by human cells. Therefore, they don't contribute calories. So there's been a lot of focus on, okay, well, you know, artificial sweeteners, and we have a post coming out about that WHO guidance, which is very flawed um, and not aligned with actual randomized clinical data, but they were looking solely at things like weight, long-term weight loss and other things. We were discussing when we 
discuss artificial sweeteners about the safety of them. And ultimately, um, you know, if you're reducing calorie consumption by subbing in artificial sweeteners, non-nutritive sweeteners for caloric sweeteners, you know, you will ultimately decrease your caloric intake. But ultimately, this study was looking at things like glucose tolerance tests, so changes in blood glucose levels after eating. They also did some sampling of oral microbiome and gut microbiome in the form of feces samples. And they looked at things like consuming aspartame, saccharin, sucralose, or stevia. And then they also looked at glucose and then a control group that didn't do anything. And so they these people were um, consuming six packets of these things every day for 14 days, which is a decent amount of artificial sweeteners. I think even if I have one, it's like one packet at most because they they taste very sweet compared to nutritive sweeteners. But basically what they did was they looked at blood glucose levels. There was 120 volunteers distributed across these, these six groups. Um, so essentially roughly 20 people per group. They looked at... Um, Those glucose monitors that are attached to the arm, they did glucose tolerance tests that looked at how quickly the blood glucose levels changed um, after eating glucose. They also looked at stool and saliva samples that they did microbiome profile. So what they said or what they reported was that there were changes in the populations of the bacteria before and after ingesting the non-nutritive sweeteners compared to the control group. So... That is completely logical, right? Because you're changing the food source for the, the gut bacteria. If that changes, certain species of the gut bacteria will change. It's not terribly surprising. They did also say that the specific non-nutritive sweeters, sucralose and saccharin, had larger peaks or larger changes in um, glucose tolerance test peaks um, compared to those that were just eating glucose or those that were had had nothing. And they made the claim that this means that they're pushing the body towards gluco and glucose intolerance, which, you know, I think is is a little bit of a stretch because, you know, that's going to be a long-term thing. Um, they did say that there were no changes in glycemic response for aspartame or stevia, other two other non-nutritive sweeteners. And then what they did was they did a fecal transplant essentially. Not quite, but they took the feces, the stool samples of the participants who had the increased blood sugar levels. They harvested bacteria from those feces and they fed those to germ-free mice. So these are mice that essentially have been raised in a sterile environment and have no microbiome of their own. They have no colonized species. And they said that when they did that, they saw an inhibition of um, or a reduction in the ability to regulate their own blood glucose levels. Now, I will say, you know, they did a lot of steps. The study was interesting, but I think we still can't make broad conclusions about this, right? We know that whatever you're going to eat is going to change the profile of your gut microbiome because they're responding to what you're eating. Germ-free mice have a very unusual physiology, so it's not really representative of what's happening in an individual or even what's happening in a normal mouse. And they are um, harvesting stool samples. So it's really important to understand that when you're collecting stool samples, you're looking at bacteria that are shed in the feces. And that may be disproportionate to what's living in your gut. So your gut is at a very long, complex, circuitous pathway. And the majority, the highest density of of bacteria actually live in the cecum, which is the highest region of the large intestine. It's the, the region of the large intestine closest to the small intestine. So furthest away from the rectum in the scope of the large intestine. 
In addition, the bacteria that live in your gut, they have different proteins that they're producing in order to attach or adhere to the gut. So when you poop, essentially, certain species may be shed disproportionately because they're not attached as tightly or because they're lower in the gut. And so the mechanical force kind of shifts them more quickly. So a stool sample, while it can give you a high-level overview, you can use it to look at changes. It can't be really be used to kind of diagnose anything or really give you the full picture. In order to really accurately sample, you have to look at all the different compartments of the gut and sample all of those different regions. So, you know, this this study got a lot of attention. A lot of people who are opposed to artificial sweeteners were like, look, this means that, you know, artificial sweeteners are bad because they're changing the gut microbiome. But what this really means is these species are dynamic. They're constantly responding to changes in their environment, which is our gut, and those food sources that they are provided. So if you're giving them a new carbohydrate that they haven't seen before, certain species are going to respond and metabolize it, and they may reproduce as a result. And other species who don't metabolize it may decline as a result. And and those food sources, whether it's glucose, whether it's stevia, whether it's sucralose, whether it's fat, whether it's protein, those are always changing. So you can't really make a conclusion about a clinical implication or whether those changes are good or bad until you really understand the scope of what that means, both on a population level, but also on an individual level. In addition, you can't use microbiome profiles or populations as a biomarker for health because you don't know what that means yet. You can't say, oh, well, you had 10%, you know, bifidobacterium, you know, subspecies, whatever, and now it went down to 8%, therefore you're developing condition X because that's not what it means. You can't make those sorts of conclusions yet. So you actually, you always sort of allay any concerns that I have by emphasizing that, and you even said it, I think, on this episode, that our bodies are so well-regulated and, you know, when one change, something else will happen to sort of balance it. And so what I'm hearing the takeaway, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, is yes, something is changing you know, as a result of these artificial sweeteners, but we don't understand first of all, other things are likely changing as a result of that change to maybe ba- balance it out in, in layperson terms. Um, and, and also, like, we just don't know the clinical implications of that. Like, yes, things are changing, but things change all the time, and we don't know if it's actually bad for us. That's absolutely true. And I think another thing that's really important is that we have a ton of redundancy in our own body, but also in the bacterial species in our GI tract. So even if you see an increase or a decrease in one bacterial species and you're you're like, oh, well, that's the bacteria that metabolizes this molecule. There's probably at least a handful of other bacterial species that are living there too that are also contributing to metabolism of a given molecule. And so you have a lot of these functional redundancies. And, um, you know, as, as you know, you kind of summarized, these redundancies ensure that even temporary changes are not going to dramatically impact your overall health. But unfortunately, you know, these words get slung around a lot and these studies get misconstrued and it obviously falls into predatory marketing of things. So not to go off on a tangent, but I just don't, you know better than I do, this 
field of research. It, it must be booming right now, or, you know, there must be so, so much happening, so many advancements. And I, I don't know, like, I remember, was it recently, was it a few months ago or late in 2022, there was the FDA, I'm trying to look quickly, the first pill for fecal transplants wins FDA approval. You know, there's all this, all this really cool stuff going on. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a really hot research area. It's really complex. And, you know, it's hard to obviously replicate the complexity of both the human and the gut microbiome in the lab. And and so there are clinical studies that are ongoing. But also alongside of that, there's the Wild West of kind of these these marketing sectors like the probiotic supplements, but also these these at-home microbiome tests. Oh, I want to hear about the tests. So because this research area is so hot, we, we understand that the microbiome is likely involved with a lot of processes, both metabolic, um, immunologic, and so on. So it's the word of the day, right? People, but as a result, it's co-opted by wellness influencers and, you know, consumer companies. And one of the latest trends are these at-home microbiome tests. And again, it's another marketing ploy that is being touted to allow you to hack your health. And as just mentioned in the very beginning of this episode, You know, there's no one size fits all for what a good microbiome is or what a healthy microbiome is. And even if you look person to person, even in the same household, they're going to have different microbiomes. But ultimately, there are a lot of companies that are selling these direct to consumer tests. These are typically claiming uh, to take a stool sample most often and are going to give you a detailed view of the microorganisms that live in your gut and use that information to prevent or cure disease. And it's very similar to these food sensitivity tests where we talked about. About, again in another episode but it's a it's a huge it's a it's a billion dollar industry already in the last five years alone and ultimately you know there's a lot of misconceptions and um, I even spoke with inverse about this topic a few months ago because of course people want to understand the microbiome they want to understand the implications of it but but we're not there yet and these microbiome tests that are selling these there's there's just not enough research these are not clinically validated tests but beyond that these tests are not regulated. So one brand of test may be extracting DNA from the microorganisms that are in the gut, in the stool sample, which is the genetic material. Other tests, they may be looking, extracting the RNA, which would be the expressed genes of the bacteria at a given time. And they're looking at those and they're making some sort of conclusion. And that's just not how things happen, right? First of all, I talked about the limitations of stool samples and how you probably are disproportionately shedding certain species more than others. You can't say, I look at this stool sample, I see these populations, therefore it means X condition. You know, there's no blueprint for what this means yet. You know, you can look at changes and maybe make some interpretations on that from a research perspective, but there's no clinical interpretation that you can do especially for these tests that are not clinically validated. I can't even wrap my brain around this. What are, what do they claim to, I'm just trying to think, okay, I'm a person, I buy a test, I guess there's some sort of a stool sample, you're saying. So you send it in and they give you like, you know, they sequence what they find in there and they, they're like, okay, well, we found these species in these proportions and, and therefore this profile is associated with, you know, this disease state or this not. Now, again, none of that's true because we don't know that. And on top of that, these tests, are not sequencing for the hundreds of species. They have a very select sampling, a subset that they're looking at. So there's a lot of limitations to these tests to begin with. 
On top of that, you know, as I mentioned, it's not an accurate picture of what's happening in your gut because your stool sample is only a product of the gut. It's not the full picture. These at-home tests are really not going to provide you any information that a clinician can get from clinically validated tests, you know, and as I mentioned, they're incredibly dynamic and they're changing from person to person. So you can't look at these and be like, oh, well, I need to add this to my diet or I need to take this out to my diet and so on and so forth. But they've become very popular because again, they're marketed as these biohacking tools to help you improve your health. Well, and you know, I feel like people just like want information on their bodies and I get that, but it's like, okay, here's the information, but it doesn't mean it, it's, it's, you can't it, do anything with anything. it. You can't do yeah. anything with it. Right. Okay. So the thing I was going to say before, and it's sort of relevant to this, because I think a lot of these tests are being marketed now on this basis that our microbiome is linked to our mental health. And people make a lot of claims about this. And I think it's based on, you know, we, we have seen some trends that people with certain gut disorders have higher rates of um, anxiety, depression, and other issues. But again, you know, we can't, we can't determine, ca- or at least I, I don't think we've established causality yet. You know, maybe there's some correlation, but we don't, we don't, we don't really fully understand it. Um, but I've heard a lot about it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great point. And and part of it comes from the fact that we actually do synthesize some serotonin in our gastrointestinal tract. And so, you know, that's a neurotransmitter. Neurotransmitters are, are chemical signals that can be synthesized all over our body. And they, they um, you know, transmit impulses between neurons. And so they help our brains and our central nervous system communicate. And so I think some of that has been co-opted by the fact that, you know, there is serotonin in the GI tract and, you know, bacteria can participate in that, but other cells in our GI tract can participate in that. And then of course that gets co-opted. Now we don't know a causal relationship between changes in microbiome or, or certain microbiome profiles and how that relates to potential mental illness. We don't even fully understand the scope of mental illness, right? And so again, people are looking at these correlations, some very, very weak, some only theoretical, and are making these claims that, you know, you have to heal your gut in order to cure diseases X, Y, and Z. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I hear that or see it on social media. You know, heal your gut is one of these buzzword phrases that has just put people in this paralysis of fear about everything they're eating and the bacteria that are living in there. And, you know, as we mentioned, keeping it simple and focusing on a diverse and healthy diet and and, and good sleep and vaccines and, and it's not sexy, but that's, you know, those are the things to do, you know, moderate exercise and all of those sorts of things. It's so funny because that's like pretty much every one of our episodes. It's like, save your money. Don't buy that product. Don't buy that at-home test. No, you can't biohack, you know, your health. Right. And just eat a balanced diet, make good, you know, like, and all these other, like, all the things that you said. And obviously that's an oversimplification. Every Everything is, you know, multifactorial and there are genetic factors and all this stuff, but sure. yeah, we absolutely. don't need these things. Right. And, and, <laughs> and taking, taking a consumer product as a test to diagnose these things is going to ultimately probably do you more harm than good. Well, I love this. I learned so much from you and I don't know if you have any last thoughts to add. And I, can I just apologize briefly? If you're watching this on YouTube, there was like chaos in the background. I don't know if you saw it, Andrea, we had to stop the recording. My daughter walked in, she's watching TV. I had to let my daughter out. So sorry. Um, and they, thank you all for your patience. This whole, you know, video recording adds that other element of, huh, I really need to 
get things in order before we hit record. Anyway, Andrea, any last thoughts before you take us home? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we know the microbiome is important. We know that it participates in many things that are essential for optimal health. We don't know the scope of some of the implications. It cannot be used as a diagnostic tool, and it cannot be used to, you know, make claims about uh, causality of certain diseases. So, you know, if you hear really outlandish claims being made about the microbiome, or if they're using it as some, you know, statement that you need to heal it or, or cure it, just know that that is not the story, and it's way more complex than that, but they are probably trying to sell you a product. So hopefully you learned a thing or two. Thanks for tuning in. If you want more unbiased science, please consider supporting us through our Substack. It is $5 a month, and it gives you a direct line to Jess and myself, access to our private Facebook group, our monthly Q&As, and you get to submit topics for future podcast episodes. So check it out at theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. And please make sure to subscribe to YouTube, even if you're not going to watch the episodes there, just subscribing helps. It is www.youtube.com forward slash at unbiased side pod. And of course, we will continue to provide updates on all things science and health related on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at unbiased side pod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah. Oh, I am a scientist.